I still recall from the books I read All the great empires built in my head But every year I raise one more I poured it out at a wardrobe door But I Hello and welcome to another certifiable episode of Seeking Tumnus, the podcast where we knock on the doors of today's young adult fiction and hope it doesn't knock back. On alternate episodes, we wake up the snoozing tomes of our youth, feed them some chicken soup and listen to their wild tales once more. Fresh or musty, shiny or dusty, we seek excellence and are sometimes rewarded. My name is Laurie and I'm joined by my friends and fellow hosts... The capital, Keith Rowe. No wackers. <laughs> Why? <laughs> oh, it's a tribute to you, Pat, from last episode. <laughs> did, I, did I say that last episode? Yes. You did, and it made the edit. <laughs> In what context did I say that? No wackin' furries? <laughs> anyway, never mind. Obviously, I'm not as classy as I think I am. <laughs> You'll have to have a listen to our previous episode. The beaming Bree. Hello. And the prized Patrick Moon. Laurie, will you accept this rose? It's Bachelor Final Week. <laughs> oh. What happens if I do, Patrick? <laughs> I think we go to the fantasy suite. <laughs> <laughs> Fan me down. (laughs) This episode, Brie has chosen the dramatic and suspenseful We Were Liars, 2014, by E. Lockhart. But before we bear all, briefly, beware, for this book's best bits are about to be broached. If you'd rather not be briefed of its banality or brilliance, back up, breathe, buy it, and be back here soon. It's not really an A to B kind of book, and it's worth a look. So consider yourself warned. That was a nice alliterative introduction. Thank you. Patrick Moon, would you kindly give our listeners a smidgen of a sample of page one? Make it as snooty as you please. I will. I've just been scrolling through, like, trying to find page one for this. And I just realised that at the beginning, there's a goddamn map and a family tree. Seriously? I did that this evening also. This would have been so useful when I was reading the book and thinking, who the hell are these people? (laughs) (laughs) I saw the family tree. My Kindle opened up to the family tree, but it didn't open up to the map. So that was a surprise. Yeah. Yeah, mine went straight to part one. Yeah, my Kindle opened straight Mm. to part one as well. Mm. There you go. If you get the Kindle edition, like scroll back three pages because it's probably worth your time. Do you think that it needs a map? I liked the map. Yeah, it's a nice little map. I don't think it needed a map per se, but uh, there was a bit of an ensemble, so the family tree is kind of cool. Hmm. In any event, welcome to the beautiful Sinclair family. No one is a criminal. No one is an addict. No one is a failure. The Sinclairs are athletic, tall, and handsome. We are old money Democrats. Our smiles are wide, our chins square, and our tennis serves aggressive. It doesn't matter if divorce shreds the muscle of our hearts so that they will hardly beat without a struggle. 
It doesn't matter if trust fund money is running out, if credit card bills go unpaid on the kitchen counter. It doesn't matter if there's a cluster of pill bottles on the bedside table. It doesn't matter if one of us is desperately, desperately in love. So much in love that equally desperate measures must be taken. We are Sinclairs. No one is needy. No one is wrong. We live, at least in the summertime, on a private island off the coast of Massachusetts. Perhaps that is all you need to know. And that is the first page. Thanks, Pat. I'm glad it was you that had to say a massive shoo shoo shoo. <laughs> Bree, was that intro everything you'd hoped for? It actually is. I am intrigued by big money, by stupid amounts of money, talking about the pills, talking about secrets, talking about lies. It's like a really good daytime movie, and I think that's fantastic. I'm also intrigued by stupid amounts of money, but I haven't had very much exposure to them, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) I um, was a little bit worried, actually. It wasn't something that I could immediately identify with, and I was wondering then whether the characters would be outside my wheelhouse. Laurie? Is this just the Patrick imitation hour? Is that what we're doing? (laughs) This is the new tradition, is it, Keith? You sleep both some masters of the universe and some wheelhouse in. (laughs) That one was without thought, so it must be the influence of Pat once again. I have been rubbing off on you. (laughs) Yes, way too commonly. I thought you gave me the rose. (laughs) (laughs) He's used and discarded me. There are many fantasy suites. Oh, (laughs) There are actually three fantasy suites, as any Bachelor viewer would know. (laughs) Carry on. There's something entirely satisfactory about the phrase, and our tennis serves, aggressive, isn't there? I thought that was great. Yeah. It plonks you straight into a, a mindset of what these people's lives are like, or what you perceive their lives to be like. Yes, yes, exactly. That small turn of phrase really did put you in the scene. You're right, yeah. I don't really give a damn that one of them is in love. But I do like to read about an excessively rich family rotting from the inside, so bring it on. (laughs) I thought the excessively rich family rotting from the inside bit seemed a little bit cliche, but I thought that it was well put together anyway, so yeah, I was pretty much on board as well. Great. Alrighty, Keith, we've got the briefest of setups. How do the mighty fall? So we've heard the introduction to the superficially flawless Sinclair family, that's given to us by 17-year-old Cadence Sinclair Eastman, or Katie to those who know her. After some form of mysterious accident that she doesn't remember, she's become a shadow of her former self and suffers debilitating migraines. She takes us back to summer as a 15-year-old when her father left her and her mother. In response, Katie's mum got rid of all signs of him, and her and Katie sought refuge on Beechwood, the Sinclair's private island. We meet the extended family, Patriarch Harris Sinclair, his wife Tipper, their three daughters Carrie, Bess and Katie's mum Penny. The numerous cousins, the most important being Johnny and Mirren, who are the same age as Cadence. Finally, there's Gatwick, or Gat, the nephew of Carrie's longtime boyfriend. He's been coming to the island since they were all eight. Together, the four of them, Cadence, Johnny, Mirren and Gat, refer to themselves... You can see where the family tree came in useful here. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, I've left some names out here just to not make it (laughs) as confusing. So Cadence, Johnny, Mirren and Gat, they refer to themselves as the liars. Katie has basically been in love with Gat since summer 14, and as a result, she was really looking forward to seeing him the following summer. Things don't go according to her plans, though, when she realises that Gat has a girlfriend back in New York. 
and she doesn't recall much else from that summer except that at the end she woke up on a beach half-dressed with a head injury. Summer 16, because of the trauma suffered, the family decides she's not ready to return to the island, so she spends the time on a European trip with her dad. She emails the rest of the liars throughout this time, but none of them respond. Summer 17, she returns to the island, and with the help of the liars, her memories begin to return. They're primarily about the aunts arguing about inheritance, who will get each of the houses, with the prized possession being the stately Claremont home. The arguing, fueled by plenty of drinking, culminates in a huge fight that results in everyone leaving the island in a huff. Everyone, that is, except the liars. And here is the massive spoiler. Finally, Cadence remembers all of the details from the climactic end to Summer 17. The liars stayed behind on the island, and in hope of ending the family's fighting, they burnt down Claremont. But their plan was ill thought out, and Johnny, Mirren and Gat are trapped inside, and perish. Only Cadence emerged alive, because she was on the first floor. She tells her liars that she remembers everything that happened, and they're released from their limbo-like state, free to go to the next world. And Cadence resolves to be more kind to everyone. The end. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of went off the rails a little bit. (laughs) I feel like you might have been uh, editorialising a little bit. (laughs) Uh, Not too much, I don't think. It's maybe the last part. (laughs) But that's pretty true to the plot, I thought. Yeah, that's true to the plot. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Bree, how about you tell us why you chose this book? Oh, sure. Yes. Oh, sorry, that was me. Do you mind if I do my little thing? No, I guess. Do you have a little thing? I do. <laughs> oh, well, let the boys know. Why don't you? <laughs> if you could wait until after the episode. <laughs> oh, it's all right it... for you to throw roses in my direction, but as soon as I mention my tiny thing. <laughs> you would have found out shortly in the mystery suite or whatever it's called anyway. <laughs> Very shortly. <laughs> <laughs> Bree, I think it's fair to say that we've all chosen some duds, except perhaps Patrick, who must have a pathological need for validation. I'm pretty sure Brog is on my card. Thank you very much. So. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. I keep forgetting. <laughs> Imagine my average rating if I hadn't brogged it. <laughs> Stupid. It's often because we're stretching out for something unknown. Did you have a strong bead on this book before it made the list? No, I had absolutely, as you well know, No thought whatsoever. Never heard of it. I am, however, very intrigued, as I said before, by these incredibly rich lives. Celebrities all around. There's these it people. There are these big moneyed families. I've watched The O.C. I've watched Gossip Girl. (laughs) Uh, These sorts of things absolutely fascinate me. So when I looked up female authors, young adult fiction contemporary, as I usually do when it's my turn to choose. Sexist. Pardon? Sexist. (laughs) I'm trying to balance the average, Laurie. Balance the average. Yeah, so I try to come up with something that's written by a female author, and this one came up. We Were Liars. It's set on an island. I want to know what these big moneyed families are like. However, it also had some pretty good reviews, and it had won an award and... Goodreads gave it a pretty high rating on average, so that was intriguing. So there must have been more to it is basically what went through my mind. And then, of course, I read the back page and the synopsis, and the lead character's name is Cadence, which is a very close family member of mine, and I thought, right, sold. Let's do it. Great. Hmm. What did you think of it, Laurie? 
I was surprised by how easy this book was to read. I think I knocked it over in maybe two and a bit sections. In terms of suspense, the author, Emily Jenkins, who goes under the pen name E. Lockhart, really nailed the slow unravelling of memory and the development of characters and the planting of those seeds that would later bear fruit in the final chapters. That grand reveal at the end, which I thought was pretty cleverly, briefly waylaid by the red herring of the dogs being killed in the fire. She suddenly realised that the dogs were killed in the fire. They were locked in a room upstairs, and she's temporarily distressed by that before she comes to the full realisation that she's actually killed all her friends. (laughs) So the ending came as a surprise to me. I like the red herring before that great reveal at the end. So I think in terms of a suspenseful book with a twist or secret ending... It did its job. I'll just interject on the whole red herring thing because the mystery was that she was half naked on the beach and had suffered some major head trauma, which doesn't really tie in that well to the fire. So it was a nice red herring in that sense. Mm. Were you thinking that it was like a sexual assault or something that was coming? Mm. That's what came through my mind. Yeah, she even offered that up as a solution at one point. Who did you think would have been the perpetrator of that sexual assault? Well, it's... Gatwick, because that's the way that he'd been set up. The outsider. If it was going to be a sexual assault, I thought he was going to be the red herring and you'd be led to believe that it would be him the whole book, but that it would turn out to be like the grandfather because he's a bit demented and a bit, I don't know, I won't say evil, but he's certainly not a nice guy. I had an eye to the grandfather as the possible perpetrator of some kind of physical assault on her. Sure. Not necessarily Mm. sexual. Yeah. Right. Okay. There's a reference to a book, I can't recall what it is now, a very famous book in there where it talks about the outsider. Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights, yeah. Heathcote, is it? Heathcliff. Heathcliff, where he's taken into the family effectively and they still see him as having this underlying animal element and their treatment of him, it turns him into the animal. And that's what mm. it was, again, as a red herring, implying that maybe that was Gatwick in this situation. Mm. Yeah, right. Was there anyone to really like as a person in this book? Perhaps not. There was absolutely nobody. No. Maybe Gat. Maybe Gat. Mm, even he had... He had flaws. Yeah, he was a bit aloof and he it was a bit morally superior to all of his friends. And he was cheating on his girlfriend all summer. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he had a problem with the life of excess that they lived and he was a bit about charity and living a bit more modestly and using money for good rather than for their selfish needs. Sort of. I mean, he still then came and enjoyed every summer since he was a child on this ridiculously exclusive island. Exactly right. He wasn't knocking back the all-expenses-paid trip to a private island every summer. So, yes, I think each character had enough narcissism, hypocrisy or selfishness to keep them all at arm's length. Or naivety as well. I mean, if you look at Mirren, who's supposedly the kind one, she just was a little naive. Yeah, exactly. There's something about every character that just niggled you a little bit, and I never really fell in love with any of the characters. But I was engaged with their stories, particularly with Cadences. I was pretty invested in uncovering the secrets she'd buried right until the end, and was satisfied with what she came to remember. I have to confess, though, I'm beginning to tire a little bit of young adult authors focusing so narrowly on mental health. Certainly, it's a real-world problem that demands attention. I'm just feeling a little bit of fatigue after We Were Liars, A Monster Calls, Goodnight Mr. Tom, Finding Audrey, and Perks of Being a Wallflower. 
Ocean at the end of the lane. Oh, yeah, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> all of which all. beat that drum. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, all of which had characters that were dealing with mental health issues or monsters, mm-hmm. depending on who you ask. Or traumas. Uh, yeah. That might have more to do with our selections, though, than being representative of the variants of young adult fiction themes. Well, we can have people banging vampires instead if you want. Like, <laughs> we've tried that. That is a form of mental illness. <laughs> I did overall feel that this book hit all of the prerequisites of a good suspense novel. So I enjoyed it. Bree, what did you take away from your reading? Well, I'll just pick up on that point you were making about contemporary young adult fiction having nowhere else. Do they have nowhere else to go? Is this sort of it for the 21st century young adult novel? Is this the end of Seeking Tumblets? <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting. I went and had a look at our list, much like you must have, Laurie, of things that we've selected. And if you look back at the classics, they sort of seem to fall in general into two categories, one which I would consider adventure. And into that, I put things like Brog and Redwall and Sabriel and Indian in the Cupboard, Tomorrow When the War Began, or things that I would describe as more dramas about a moment in time. So Anne of Green Gables, Little Women, my Family and Other Animals, Looking for Alabrandi, The Outsiders, all of these things which talk about a particular drama set in a moment in time which makes them sing to us. And when you look at all of these young adult fiction since Harry Potter, I guess, it does seem like maybe it, you're right, maybe it is just all of those ones that we've been picking up which have this additional, this mental illness or these traumas, but there is a heck of a lot there. And it's not just these ones. When I was doing my little Google searches, there's a lot of dealing with death and other types of mental illness and schizophrenia and acceptance and all of these sorts of things. Is this because these were taboo subjects 30 years ago? Is this because now is the time when we're actually talking about this a lot more? I think there'll be a huge element of that. Hmm. These are issues that are becoming more socially acceptable to discuss. I don't know why it's been largely at the expense of some of the other things that we've talked about. There's not a lot of just sort of fun stuff coming onto our plates these days. Mm. Maybe we need to look up a few comedies. I mean, we did Mr. Stink, which was good fun. We've also done some adventure ones, things like Divergent. But even those have a like a bleak dystopian outlook of the future. Mm, that's right. Stay tuned for next episode. It's going to be mm. fun, fun, fun. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Maybe we need to investigate something a bit lighter to see whether there's quality comedic works out there. Like mm. when I think of comedy books that I've enjoyed in the past, the only thing Judy like, Bloom, Terry Pratchett. Maybe we need to get on to those Pratchett ones that people yeah. keep recommending to us. Pratchett's the only one that immediately came to mind, to be honest with you. Mm. So we'll have to do a little bit of work in that area and see if we can find something and find something good. Skimming through my notes, the only other thing I've written here is deja vu. (laughs) Banana, for some reason. Why did you write that? (laughs) (laughs) So it's basically, you know, you get that sense of deja vu because we've been reading quite a lot. Before you move on from that point about the current trend, I was making a point to you off-air about 
how some of the books that I used to read as a young man were similarly themed, but instead of being about mental health, there were a lot of books that were about escaping the current reality of the world. And the prime example I'm thinking is the book that we've been avoiding for some reason, which is The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, after which we're named, (laughs) where characters are escaping off into fantasy possibly to escape from the horrors of the world around them, which is the the presence of the... Is it the First World War or the Second? I think it must be the First. I suspect it's the First. Hmm. I seem to vaguely recall quite a few books that were either dealing with those wars directly, something like The Silver Sword, or about escaping from reality to escape the horrors of those worlds, like The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. So I wonder if it's something that you have eras of novels, perhaps, that deal with the calamity of their time and perhaps the calamity of our time for teens is mental health issues. Mm, yeah. That's a really good point. We should look at what other people think about that. I'm sure there have been essays that have been written. Mm. All right, on with your thoughts, Bree. I really liked this, I guess, bittersweet tale. I also devoured it. I stayed up extra late and read in between dinner time and in between courses at dinner time. I really liked the way that it wove in issues like this hint of racism from, or it's not even a hint, this outward racism from the grandfather for the dark-skinned potential son-in-law and how his daughter refuses to marry the son-in-law because otherwise she'll be out of the inheritance. This elitism and class system where these people just have no sense of reality. These kids even, they just don't see the world the way that Gat sees the world. And yes, he's got a bit of a moral superiority over them, but it really takes him having to explain these things to these others that just gives you a different perception of the glitz and glamour and polo crowd. It also weaves in the fact that these girls who are fighting for the estate of their father have never actually achieved anything in and of themselves. You could argue, obviously, that they've had families and that they've lived a full life to their own way, but they don't work, they have very part-time jobs, they're just living on their trust accounts, they're not actually adding value to society in any real way, and yet they've got all of these secrets and facades, and it's all about who has the best tennis serve, as it's so eloquently put, and the academics and scoring well and getting into the right college and so on and so forth. So it's all woven through really well in flashbacks, which is interesting. I also liked the nods to Wuthering Heights, as we mentioned before. And the other one is King Lear. So I don't know if anybody else, any of you guys are familiar with King Lear, but it's where Lear's three daughters are fighting for the estate. Ah, that comes back to me now. Having studied King Lear, Mm. I didn't really think about it when reading. I must have glossed over that part, but it's definitely very King (laughs) Lear-like. It is. Don't they name check King Lear in the actual text? I think they do. I don't remember it. They may have. Hmm. This is almost a take on, it's a modern day sibling rivalry. And King Lear it's, is, itself is also a tragedy where, I don't know if you're all going to go and read it, but all three end up dying. And his favourite daughter ends up dying in his arms. It does get a name check in there. Does it? It's one of the things that Cadence gives away. King Lear. Ah, yes. right, of course. So I really, really liked it. I didn't pick the twist until very near the end. I also, oh, the other thing that I've written deja vu about is the fairy tales. So, oh, yes. There's three fairy tales or three modern takes on fairy tales, all of which have to do with the family secrets 
coming out. And it's almost like this is the way that Cadence feels that she can talk about the family secrets is in this hidden facade of a fairy tale. Like a monster calls. Correct. And also, what was the book, Patrick, that you selected early on? Book of Lost Things. Mm. Book of Lost Things. You're right. These these fairy tales just interjected between the regular chapters to tell a story. Mm. So I really liked that as well. I devoured it. I really, really enjoyed it. I was really surprised to find myself absolutely bawling at the end of it. For what I thought was really going to be a very light-hearted look at possibly some naff, maybe drugs, very light. I shouldn't say that. But what I thought was going to be a very... Something run-of-the-mill like drug abuse. No, but a very (laughs) G-rated Gossip Girl style book. This one took me by surprise and I really liked it. Hmm. Who's next? Before we go on, Bree, regarding your point about generational wealth and how the rich grandfather, his daughters never made any careers of their own of any sort of special note and didn't really set themselves up for financial success. Instead, they relied on the inheritance. Yeah, Mm. exactly. It reminded me of a quote, and the quote isn't exactly applicable because it's from Sheikh Rashid bin Said al Maktoum. Apologies if I got that wrong. Who was responsible for the, this is just reading Wikipedia, for the transformation of Dubai from a small cluster of settlements into the big city as we know it today. And his line, which was more about oil and how it was eventually going to run out, but it made me think of generational wealth. And the quote is, my grandfather rode a camel. My father rode a camel. I drive a Mercedes. My son drives a Land Rover. His son will drive a Land Rover, but his son will ride a camel. I think that's kind of a bit Mm. true of generational wealth, where a family becomes rich over time, but eventually they get too rich to the point where perhaps they become too used to wealth and know nothing else and never work to retain that wealth and eventually lose it. Well, that certainly rings true, I feel, in this. You don't feel a spark of determination from any of the liars with the exception perhaps of Gatwick who talks about going on and making a difference and all of the other things that he could do in the world but then having said that he then continues to come back to this island and live a life of luxury every summer Hmm. instead of going off and working in a poor country in South America or you know going on a gap year somewhere where he could be learning something new or I don't know he's only 15 years old to be fair yeah true Mm, true (laughs) true 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 the grandfather the patriarch even he is getting a bit jack off and jacked off he's jacking (laughs) up (laughs) he's getting a bit dissatisfied with his daughter's lack of success and self-determination and threatens to give all the fortune away as to charity. Where does it come from? I mean, he's raised them. Mm, True. Or hasn't raised them or has raised them in a particular way. He has these very firm beliefs about what makes someone successful. You can't say sorry and all these things like that. Mm. These mantras that he's constantly implanting in the children's heads. Mm. Anyway, I digress. Patrick? I don't really know. I keep sort of wavering between what I think about it because I enjoyed it too and I read it pretty quickly. Uh, It's not a particularly long book, but I I smashed it. But at the same time, I don't... There wasn't a lot of depth to the characters, I don't think. I found them a bit cardboard cut-out-ish. And the whole setting, similarly, a little bit of a cardboard standee in that it's really easy just to throw shade at wealthy people with family money and call them lazy and that kind of thing. Like, it's it's a little bit boring. 
because it's so done in every other form of media. Whenever I start to come across this kind of thing, it just sort of rankles me a little bit as sour grapes or perhaps that kind of idea that, you know, it's better to be happy than to be rich kind of thing. And we're all saying that because we're not rich. And that's the only reason that anybody (laughs) believes this thing. And so... That's our excuse. Yeah. I don't know. So it, it strikes me in that way as cliche and a little bit done before. I didn't love the fairy tale interjections. I thought they took me away from the story a little bit and they didn't fit quite as well as I would have liked them to or they weren't as useful for the story overall as they could have been. They were certainly more useful in a Monster Calls, weren't they? Yeah, well, Monster Calls was kind of really structured entirely around those tellings of the three fables, Hmm. whereas this they came as asides from Katie and I was enjoying more her real-world kind of revelations about the things that had been going on on the island. So I don't know that they were as well integrated as they could have been. And the other thing that bothered me a little was the writing style in that at times I found it really good and at other times it was structured in a really melodramatic kind of way and it took me out a little bit. The way the author would break sentences and write them, you know, a quarter of a sentence per line down the page and that kind of thing. And similarly, some of the metaphors that were fairly heavy-handed that Katie would use to describe her emotional state. Like at the beginning, when her father is leaving, she says, he pulled out a handgun and shot me in the heart and I fell on the ground and my heart was pulling out of my chest or something and I was bleeding all over the ground. And the blood was coming all over the driveway or something. <laughs> yeah. and That was the first one, wasn't it? And I'm like, what? Yeah. What? Yeah. <laughs> and because there is no indication that it's a metaphor and you're not really sure of the writing style, obviously that one's quite impactful at, at the beginning of the book because you think, what? It's this really matter-of-fact statement, he pulled out a handgun and shot me in the heart. Then it continues and it, it loses its power over the course of the book. She talks about her love for Gatwick and I suppose her kind of vulnerability with him. She talks repeatedly about how she bled on him and bled and bled and bled. And that's not really me paraphrasing and being ridiculous in overstating that she actually says, I bled and bled and bled and bled. Mm. And it just put me offside as melodramatic. She was a melodramatic person, and she was an awful person. She killed all her freaking friends. But, <laughs> and I always rant at Keith when he says I didn't like the character, and so, you know, I'm, I'm downgrading the book rating. No, that's not what I say, though. That's exactly what you say. I think I heard it. <laughs> I think I know what I heard. <laughs> when I say like, it doesn't mean I have to actually believe what they're doing is right. They can be assholes, and I can still like them as a character. On. Yeah, I mean, I'm not throwing shade at you. I'm just being a dick, really. I'm, I'm <laughs> it's my, my own take on this book, I suppose, is that I didn't like the characters as people. As Laurie was saying before, I didn't like any of them. And I can't tell whether that's why I'm a little bit discomforted by the whole thing or whether it's because they had that two-dimensional element to them and that I never really got that invested in what was happening to them, the troubles that they had, the interactions that they had. It all felt a little bit predictable in that way, in their relationships. Having said that, the actual narrative itself, with the the fire and the uh, memento disease that Katie contracts, was much less predictable and pretty entertaining, by and large, as a kind of mystery book. 
So I, I liked that that part of it. What about you, Keith? Before I get into my thoughts, what did we all think of the title of the book? Ah, irritating, because I thought I had missed something in the book. I couldn't determine why they were called The Liars. And in fact, in preparation for this episode, I thought, oh, I better go back and find out why they were called The Liars because I missed it. And I feel like I, I don't want to admit that to the others that I had missed a paragraph or something in my swift read. It turns out it's been omitted. It was, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Keith, it's on the cutting room floor. What's Pretty Little Liars and what's Big Little Lies and what's We Were Liars? Uh, there's just too much going on. You're 100% right there, Laurie. It's a section of the book that was omitted. I saw that written on Goodreads by some rando person. It was a rando person, but it does make a lot of sense. Is there an actual source for that? No. It was from that person having spoken to Emily, what's her name, at a book signing? Allegedly. Allegedly, of course, but it does make sense because... Well, yeah, it isn't in there. It doesn't have any context, really. There were other theories like, oh, they're called the liars because they're all lying to their grandfather to try and... or or they're being asked to lie to their grandfather so they can maintain their inheritance and stop him from giving it away to charity and the whole Mm. family's lying to each other. The facades. I'm sure there was enough of a metaphorical impetus there for the author to decide to keep it as the title despite losing the actual justification for the name of the group Mm. to an editor somewhere i mean if that's true if that rando really did ask the author and that's the author's response i think we've got cause to be a little bit pissed off (laughs) change the name of the book (laughs) yeah i concur yeah but you know obviously there must be further reason for them to retain it as the title is what i'm saying yeah okay so on to my thoughts This book, for me, tried desperately hard to be dramatic and emotional, but it just came across as affected and inauthentic. It was pretty short, though, as we've all said, so my suffering wasn't too drawn out. I think you just articulated (laughs) in about five seconds what I was trying to get across in about five minutes. He seems a little harsher than I thought you were being. Well, maybe, yeah, I don't think I felt that powerfully about it. Uh, Maybe not on Keith's level, but I definitely had that sentiment at times that's keeping it concise because like the rest of you i too really devoured this book i wanted to find out what this mystery was it was tantalizingly close throughout most of it and it just drip fed this information to you that in some cases wasn't at all relevant but it made you want to know even more the metaphors throughout they were like you said there pat they were We're like twins (laughs) yeah they were pretty impactful to begin with as the book went on though they lost their impact but i found myself liking them more for some reason maybe i was conditioned to their oh we're not twins (laughs) yeah maybe i was conditioned to them being there you're like what mortal combat fatality of emotion is she going to suffer next (laughs) yeah it was strange i didn't think i would like them more as it went on but i did and the writing was easily consumed so it was good in that sense ultimately though the way they burnt the house down was just so dumb. Oh, it was! It wasn't it stupid? It they was. were drunk, though. Yeah. Even drunk, I could burn a house down better than that. Really, I have burnt several houses down better than that. <laughs> it's absolutely absurd. Yeah. The way they plan to burn the house down is that they will each take a floor of four stories, I believe, a basement and three above-ground stories, and they're all going to pour jet fuel or something or or through their level and then they're going to light them up independently why are you on the third floor of a house that is being set alight as you are up there it is so ridiculously stupid it is oh 
I kind of wondered whether or not, though, she did actually kill them. Because we said that she murdered them, but that wasn't quite true. Like, she set fire to the bottom of the house, and the house went up like a tinderbox, and it burned upwards very quickly. But there was, in fact, a scream at the same time as she lit it up. So I kind of felt mm. like they all made the same mistake, and it was uh, it was not necessarily her that was entirely responsible. She set floor to the bottom of the house while there were a bunch of well, people trapped in the other levels, so I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but she wasn't entirely responsible. They all came up with the plan. She just happened to be on the first level, and the library was on the first level, and she doused the library with lots of fuel. I still don't understand why Gat was involved in it. What was his beef? What was he trying to pull? Well, he was very down with the establishment, wasn't he? And mm. There was Claremont sort of stood as a symbol of the establishment for all of them. Hmm. I mean, it's certainly not the first time in history that a teenager has done something dumb while drunk that's resulted in death, though. So, oh. But it was their plan. She didn't do anything that wasn't in their plan. Well, that's my take on it anyway. And she did think, oh, they may have all done their part and been off to Cuddle Town or whatever it's called. Cuddle Down. <laughs> I kept reading Cuddle Town. <laughs> I'd love to live in Cuddle Town. Right. <laughs> the problem was that the plan was lacking. They didn't arrange beforehand to not light the fire. Why do you all need to still be in the house when you light it on fire? Yes. Mm. Get out before you light it on fire. And this is this old timbery house. With plenty of books. Yeah, mm. why do you need to put fuel on every single floor all over the place? There's no logic to it. They're 15, but they're not idiots. They clearly don't have the most rudimentary understanding of fire investigations either. Definitely. It's just dumb, and I couldn't get over that, really. But I did like that Miss Lockhart mixed up her writing structure. I thought it might have upset you, Laurie, but it seemed to upset Pat more, so... I didn't have my finger on the pulse there, like the broken sentences, the repetition and sentences that spanned multiple lines. Uh, I like that she felt she could do that and use it to try to capture some of Katie's emotions. I'm all for that kind of thing usually. I enjoy it when it's done well by people like Cormac McCarthy, but it's just came across as irritating in this one because I think it was heightening the melodrama rather than adding artistic flair and that was what got under my skin more than anything. I can get behind that because, yeah, I didn't think it was that effective, but I like that she did it. Hmm. That's interesting. I really didn't have a problem with it. I mean, I recognised immediately that those fairy tales in the middle weren't as effective as other books that we've read, but I still didn't mind them. I thought that the differences between them in each iteration were interesting. Like, I was intrigued to see how it would change in the next iteration when the second one came up and the third came up. I really liked the way that it was retelling pieces of the truth that she couldn't voice herself yet. I thought that was effective and consistent, I think, with some of the others as well, the other stories that we've read in a similar vein. Mm. Yeah. I liked it. I thought it was part of her healing. It certainly sounded like her story. Yeah, I thought it worked quite well. The bit that I didn't like quite so much is the bleeding. I didn't understand that. I couldn't identify with the bleeding bits. I keep bleeding. <laughs> she did a lot of bleeding. Yeah. Yes. That should be the theme song for this book. <laughs> and maybe that's because I have a simplistic view of mental health or something and this is just her way of describing how she's hurt and just letting it all out onto Gat, usually. Mm. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. Mm. It's that vulnerability and that pain and him being receptive to that. We all go through those sorts of things when we're teenagers Maybe mine was very much more at a superficial level. It's a very, very dramatic way of describing 
the boy dramas you're going through. I'm sure almost every teenager with some kind of literary flair has written some really naff Vogon-style poetry about bleeding at some point. Are you going to post some on our Facebook page for us to all <laughs> I would, consume? I would really like to hear your Vogon poetry, Laura. <laughs> yeah, that sounded very close to home, that comment, Laura. <laughs> yeah, sorry, it all burnt down in a fire. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Pat. <laughs> Go on, Keith. I've pretty much said everything I need to say. My thoughts on the interjections of the fairy tales were basically the same as everyone else. It's been done better elsewhere. I heard that this is being turned into a movie. Is anyone going to bother watching it? I might. I would watch it. Yeah. Just Mm. out of curiosity. Of course. Good one. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I will. (laughs) But you never know. That's not the response you wanted, Keith. You should read Big Little Lies and watch that series that's currently showing. It's fantastic. It does have a big name cast. Yeah, it does. It's amazing. Big Little Liars. Yeah. Mm. It's got Nicole Kidnam. Kidnam. (laughs) (laughs) Miss Kidnam. She's been Kidnam for many years now. (laughs) (laughs) Who? Reese Witherspoon. Shailene, you know, the Divergent Girl. Shailene Woodley. Mm Mm-hmm. And Laura Dern. I believe it's a book also as well. I've been putting it off to read the book first. The book? Yeah. Read it first. It's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, it's also got... Oh, Hot Boy, Alexander Skarsgård. Yeah. The vampire, Eric. Yes. Mm. Not his less hot brother, who's also a vampire in another show. Really? Skerrick, Skarsgård? No. Mm. Not the guy from Vikings. Not his dad. No, the guy from that Netflix vampire effort from a few years back. Oh, I don't know that one. Mm. Mm. Apparently there's about 27 Skarsgård brothers. There are a lot of Skarsgård brothers. Oh. Maybe they should pit them against the Aussie boys. What are they called? Uh the Hemsworths? Yeah, Skarsgård versus Hemsworth. <laughs> <laughs> Aussie, Aussie, Aussie! <laughs> Both with some very handsome brothers, those families. Mm. Yes, whatever guys that takes, it'll be well received by women and men across the globe. I was going to say women and Patrick, perhaps. <laughs> oh, for sure, man. <laughs> but uh, Chris Hemsworth leads the pack without any doubt in my estimation of that group. Alexander could take him. No yes. way. Have mm. some nationalistic pride. <laughs> <laughs> Where does Supernatural fall then, Pat? Oh, good question. Oh, those boys. Oof. Uh, you know, less conventionally. Well, no, they are very conventionally handsome. That's a complete lie. I don't know. <laughs> they don't look like gods, but they look pretty good as humans. Fair cool. That's it on my thoughts. Bree, you had some stuff you wanted to tell us about? Oh, I was just going to pose the question to the three of you about your favourite ghosts. And I'm not talking about just people who were posing as ghosts. I'm talking about do you have in literature, television, movies, a particular affinity or a particularly fantastic memory of a ghost? Oh, man, there's going to be some spoilers in here. What do you mean? Because a lot of tales that include ghosts, certainly contemporary tellings, you don't know they're a ghost until somewhere down in the story. So, spoilers abound, everybody. (laughs) Popular movies in the last couple of decades. Watch out. Did we cover that? We We did sort of cover that in relation to this book, that Katie has an ongoing relationship with these people and then realizes they've been dead all along. Oh, yeah. Mm. Well, we we talked about the twist, but yeah, you're right. She's dealing with them every day. They're hanging out together. They're drinking together. She's getting half naked and making out with Gat. Gat? Gad. Gat. 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 We've got a real Bruce Willis situation here, essentially. Mm. Yes. I wonder if you go back and read the book, whether there'll be clues there that you miss 
the first time across because you're not expecting that kind of ending. They were acting very shady. Hanging out in Cuddletown or whatever. They were all in Cuddletown all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And, yeah, acting strangely, saying they'd been places they hadn't been. Mirren was wan and sickly and not really herself. But that was just her brain kind of starting to work right, I guess. Starting to remember, isn't it? Oh, that's a good point. Brie, are you doing denialism again? (laughs) They were just projections of us in a psyche rather than actual ghosts? It is my favourite theme, yes. But that is probably just her brain starting to write them out or write them unwell or make them disappear or make the story not quite right because it knows the truth somewhere Mm. so the part where they go off to wherever it is the dead people go yeah it's just her imagination saying goodbye they all get on the boat with frodo (laughs) (laughs) all right so let's just do the round robin then so brie you're in terms of ghost or inner ghost oh my favorite is absolutely spike when he returns in angel oh no so sorry just before we move on back to your question for this particular book ghost or inner ghost inner projection of a ghost Of course. All right. Patrick, ghost or mental problem? Oh, we have these binary questions and I think it's just not doable because the author clearly intends to have some ambiguity there in most of the cases that we've talked about. But I would lean towards like a traumatic kind of thing in this one, but the author definitely tried to throw in a ghost bone there. I'm not asking what you think the author was saying, because yes, I agree it could go either way, and that's deliberately vague, but how did you prefer to think of it whilst reading? I don't necessarily think of it in a binary kind of way Mm. while I'm reading it, but I would have said like a traumatic thing. That would be my dominant reading of this one. Vote Pat. Because I'm a fence-sitter. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> appease the masses well, No, I'm not appeased the goddamn masses What did you think? I'm going in the ghost camp here Because it bothered to come back and make a point about Them being in this sort of suffering before moving on mm. It is of course open to interpretation But it was a better book for me if it went that way Yeah, me too I liked it because it was such a real world problem book And I felt that that ghostly presence at the end Really switched things up and made it a bit more enjoyable Back back to the fantasy realm, I guess, for Laurie. <laughs> back to the safety of Cuddletown. Yeah. It was nice that they sort of relieved her of her responsibility for having killed them all mm-hmm. to a certain extent. <laughs> so I suppose that's probably good for her if they were real ghosts. They're like, nah, no hard feelings, mate. <laughs> yeah. You could probably be charged with murder, but, you know, we don't blame you. <laughs> and even if they weren't ghosts, then that's just... I guess, typical of her family glossing over their problems. (laughs) (laughs) We've been playing tennis in purgatory. It's all good. All right. Back to your game, Brie. So our favourite ghosts. Come on, Laurie. What's your favourite ghost? I was hoping you would go first because I'm struggling. Well, I just told you what mine is. Spike in Angel because I was not ready to let go of him when he dies at the end of Buffy and he pops up again. And I think that's really cute. Wasn't he a real turd burger in Buffy? I've only seen portions of it. You need to watch more. Yeah. Okay. He becomes everybody's favourite turd burger. <laughs> Sounds delicious. He's my favourite character, I think, of all time. Okay. You know what? It must be too long since I've watched it. Did he die? Because... Yes. Are you sure? Yes. Hmm. I'm going to have to continue re-watching because I think in the comics that follow... He's around. Well, this is another discussion about whether that should be considered canon or not. Sorry. (laughs) All right. Trying to bring your cartoon books in here as (laughs) legitimate sort of sources. 
All right, Patrick? <laughs> uh, Keith first. Okay. I'll give a hint for you, Laurie, maybe. Mm-hmm. There's some in Star Wars that are ghost-like. Oh. But that's not mine. Who was a ghost in that? Was that Ben Kenobi? Like, he was kind of a... Yeah, definitely Ben Kenobi. And Yoda. I thought they were holograms. No. That was a hologram when he first appeared, but when he's appearing to Luke, he's kind of ghostly. Mm. At the end of episode where Obi-Wan Kenobi lifts his lightsaber up into a non-defensive position and lets Uh. Darth Vader strike him down. He says, if you strike me down, I'll become more powerful than you can ever imagine. And then then he gets killed and everyone's like, what? Oh, well, you know, that was pointless because he's not powerful. But what it allows him to do is come back later and whisper in Luke's ear and give him the final instructions like, use the force, Luke. So I would have guessed it would have been like, because I'll be in your brain. I'll get right in your brain if you kill me. You won't be able to stop thinking of me. No, he passes on, but he's able to maintain a presence long enough to give Luke the guidance he needs. And he's around in the next movie as well, but he gives him enough guidance for Luke to be able to trust using the Force and blot the Death Star. So. Cool ghost, mediocre movies. Maybe you're right, Keith. Maybe it's Obi-Wan <laughs> Kenobi. <laughs> He's not mine, though. Mine is Beetlejuice from Beetlejuice, and I can't say it again. Oh. <laughs> That's an excellent one. Wow. I haven't seen Beetlejuice for so long. Neither have I. There's a sequel in the making. There is. There is. Wow. The sequel the world has been crying out for. <laughs> The sequel is the bread and butter of movie studios these days. Right. Pat, come on. You've got none. I really don't know. I don't watch a lot of supernatural type material other than supernatural. (laughs) I remember uh, watching The Sixth Sense when I was younger with my mum. She took me to the movies to go watch The Sixth Sense when it came out. And uh, that scared the crap out of me. I remember young Misha Barton was a ghost and she has to be one of my most memorable (laughs) ghosts probably because she was scaring my pants off in the cinema when I was a wee lad. Uh, So, I don't know, maybe. And then she was like everyone's favourite soap star later on and I managed to lose that aversion to her. I can't think of any other ghosts that are particularly memorable to me. Have you thought of any in that time, Laurie? Uh, to be honest with you, my first thought was to Bruce Willis as well. Sure, it was mega popular, so it might seem a bit naff, but the execution of that story before M. Night Shyamalan and Ding Dong lost the plot, it was just perfect. It was the thing that everybody was talking about and trying not to talk about, and it was just such a great twist. He's sort of the quintessential ghost of our time, isn't he? Yeah. Mm. He's taken the mantle from, oh, my yes. hello. <laughs> My darling, I've hungered for your touch. Who is the ghost in that movie? Is it Whoopi Goldberg? A Swayze, no, I guess. No. I haven't watched it. I've seen that scene. <laughs> what if that movie holds up now? It'd be interesting to revisit. I don't know if it held up at the time, but I'd be interested in revisiting. Maybe I'll fly down to Melbourne. We can have a ghost party. Like <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Stay tuned for Ghost Cast. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm, interesting. Well, that was an excellent question. It's our favourite time, scoring with Brie. It's actually quite a good segue because many of our favourite ghosts will feature in scoring with me. Mm. Was Ooh. this one... Ben Kenobi. Duh. Dull, like Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin as new ghosts in Beetlejuice. <laughs> Two, sappy... But it still sugged at your heartstrings a little bit, like those dead baseball players in Field of Dreams. Mm-hmm. Three, sassy and spunky and very creepy, like Beetlejuice. Four, 
as surprising as that time when you realise that you see a dead Bruce Willis. <gasps> Five's going to be the blob, isn't it? Or as five, as magic as that moment when you realise that Whoopi has just made love to Demi. <laughs> Damn it. I thought it was going to be Slimer. Yeah, Slimer. <laughs> That's what I mean. Damn it, you've tramped on my ending. Mm. <laughs> oh, no. Keith. Uh, in terms of the descriptions, number two or two fits mine best because listen to this. I let myself look at him a long time. Every curve of his face was familiar, and also, I'd never seen him before. Gat smiled, shining, bashful. He got to his knees, kicking over his colourful book pile in the process. He reached out and stroked my hair. I love you, Katie. I mean it. I leaned in and kissed him. He touched my face, ran his hand down my neck and along my collarbone. The light from the attic window shone down on us. Our kiss was electric and soft. You've lifted this from twilight. And tentative and certain. Terrifying and exactly right. I felt the love rush from me to Gat and from Gat to me. We were warm and shivering and young and ancient and alive. I was thinking, it's true. We already love each other. We already do. It's a two. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Patrick? Oh, God. <laughs> Can I take as long as Keith? <laughs> never. Uh, I'm going to give it a three. You never take that long, Pat. <laughs> a three, because stylistically and the plot overall, I quite liked it, but the romance was not quite the best. <laughs> and, yeah, everything I said before. Three. Laurie? Uh, I think I'd give it a four, which... Yeah, I guess means I really enjoyed it. I liked the reveal at the end. I think the dripping of clues and bits of information was done in an excellent manner. I didn't like the characters, but I don't think you were meant to. So, yes, tore through it. Four stars. Four stars for me too. Excellent. You don't have a long-winded explanation, Bray? No, I'd like to keep it short, sweet, (laughs) much like our esteemed leader. Alrighty then, (laughs) next episode If you're the kind of listener that tends to read some of the books we discussed prior to listening, then too flippin' bad to you, sir or madam, because Keith has chosen the book that's not only out of print physically, but also unavailable in e-book format, to my knowledge. (laughs) Nobody wants to read this book. (laughs) I know! I can't wait to read it either. Wink! (laughs) Christopher Pike's highly celebrated by Keith. 1992 horror classic Master of Murder Surprisingly handwritten (laughs) (laughs) I'll fill everyone in on why I chose this book In the next episode But I will say that this does prove Categorically that I don't care what my rating is (laughs) (laughs) Great You know that all of us have lives and jobs and leisure activities that we enjoy doing <laughs> would not necessarily interrupt for pieces of crap literature if we didn't have to. Hey, this one looks about one-fifth of the size of Little Women, so I think we can get through it. Okay. I'm hoping it will be a bit of fun. I think it actually rates higher on Goodreads than We Were Liars. Oh, interesting. I may come back next week, Keith, and bleed and bleed and bleed and bleed on you. (laughs) (laughs) We shall see. Thanks for listening. And until next episode, if you're going to be writing about a lead character banging their ghostly lover, 
and show some damn respect for tradition and get some wrinkly old Whoopi Goldberg in on that action. Oh. And keep reading. I'm still seeking really like Whoopi. Yeah, well, she's still wrinkly. <laughs> she wouldn't have been wrinkly then. I don't think she would have been a spring chicken then. Asking the tough questions. You Bleeding. 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 Bleeding.